They can laugh about it now, the Ohm family. It was Thanksgiving dinner, suburban Minneapolis, big spread, pumpkins on the table, 14 people, and it was 2002, a year after 9-11. And we were all just talking about 9-11, just 9-11 anything. This is Alexis, the baby of the family. She and her parents came into our studio and talked with one of our show's producers, Alex Bloomberg. And one of the topics that was brought up was Osama bin Laden. Mm -hmm. And I just, for some reason, just said I thought he was attractive, I thought he was hot. And my dad really didn't appreciate that comment. I wasn't going to listen to any of it. I really wasn't. I mean, I wasn't going to let any comment like that about his looks get one inch further out of her mouth. <laughs> I'll say to this day, it was ridiculous. What, what did your father say? I think he told me to f*** off. That had never happened before. Alexis looked at her two little cousins, Henry and Hugo, who didn't know how to react. Her mom, Diane, didn't know how to react. I just saw my whole meal that I'd spent, you know, a week preparing kind of going up in flames <laughs> with that <laughs> statement. And I did, I mean, the minute, this, you know, the F-bomb landed, I, you know, I, did, I thought, well, now what am I going to do? I mean, you know, there sat these two precious little boys and their eyes were as big as saucers. And <laughs> I had to do something, anything to smooth this horrible situation <laughs> over. So I think I probably said something like, well, you know what? He does kind of look like Jesus, you know? I, why not the long hair? So, just to smooth it over. I mean, that's what I remember myself saying. Yeah. Needless to say, comparing Osama bin Laden to Jesus didn't exactly smooth things over. Then we all just started yelling. Yeah, I probably went to about 250 degrees because I just... <laughs> I think pissed. you got out of your chair. I think I got out of my chair. I really did. I said, if that's the best we can come up with after what's happened to our country, boy, I'll tell you. He, he was he was going off, and when Jeff goes off, uh, we all listen. I do remember him saying something horrible, like, I think the mid Middle East should be made into a park. I don't think lot. I ever said that. I think you did no, that day. I know yes, I you didn't. did. I guess in retrospect, uh, my reaction, I regret for what I said, but I, I had to get my point across. I just, for some reason, did had... No appreciation for what Osama bin Laden looked like. This guy, I don't care what he looks like. I don't care if he looked like Paul Newman. He's still responsible for what he did. Right. And that, I went, the looks thing is just, it just jacked me right there. Alexis pretty much knew what she was getting into to talk about Osama bin Laden this way with her dad, who's conservative and served in the army. She knew what kind of room she was working. But she hadn't really factored in the fact that it was Thanksgiving dinner. Her dad says that's a lot of what made it blow up. That, that was just the wrong place at the wrong time. It really was. I think the tension of Thanksgiving, getting the food all on the table, getting prepared, getting going. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, here we go. But today on our show, we have stories of people facing various kinds of tough rooms, trying to calculate what they're going to say, what they can get away with, and usually not getting the reactions they figured they were going to get. WBEZ Chicago, it's This American Life, distributed by Public Radio International. I'm Ira Glass. Our program today, Tough Room in Four Tough Acts. Act one, make them laugh, in which we go among comedy professionals. We face a room that is so tough there is just one laugh every hundred jokes. Act two, bar car prophecy. A young person tries to hang out in a tough room full of adults, adults and booze. Act three, Mission Impossible. 
at the doorsteps to one of the great secular temples to science ever built, New York's Museum of Natural History. Two Mormon missionaries work a very tough sidewalk as they try to bring unbelievers over to their way of seeing things. Act four, we go to the opposite of a tough room, the easiest room anywhere in this country. Or maybe in this country isn't the right way to put it. Stay with us. Back one, make them laugh. There are tough rooms for salesmen and tough rooms for politicians and tough rooms for teachers and grant applicants and job interviewees and doctoral students taking their orals. But I think the classic tough room, the tough room that defines them all, is when a comedian stands in front of a silent audience, delivering one joke after another and getting nothing back whatsoever. And there is no tougher audience than other comedians. All right, here we go. Global warming proven by one 50-degree day in January. Area man just wants to know if he should cancel his annual Oscars party or not. Nation guesses, nation guesses it will have the chicken Caesar salad. It's Monday morning in the offices of The Onion. And to start the new issue, each of the writers has brought in a list of 15 headlines for their fake news newspaper. There are eight people at the table, seven men and one woman, which is par for the course in the comedy business. Almost all of them in their 20s. Seth Reese goes first. He's just 24, been in the paper for two years. And the way it works is, if Seth can convince two people to vote for a headline, it survives one more day till the next round of editing. Star of David to add seventh point. Report, America runs wait, 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 I'm, Oh, I'm sorry, I got enough votes. I just didn't understand why that was funny and I was going to ask for it, but I I just guess. think it's silly, but... Okay. I'm just saying, I just didn't... The joke survives. Seth marks it with a highlighter. I came here because yeah. by the time they're done with this process, like The Onion is one of the most reliably funny things out there. And I heard that one of the reasons for that was this room. There was a very tough room with a tough-minded editorial process that they've been using for 20 years. And I wanted to see what that meant. Um, Car commercial pretty adamant about car Yeah Um, Class struggle a breeze for local investment banker Todd (laughs) (laughs) Now you're just calling out who you want to vote for them That's not right Though it's incredibly popular with three-quarters of a million copies in print each week, plus five million individual visitors at the website every month. It's possible that, especially if you're older, you have never actually read The Onion. So here's what you need to know. It's written in newspaper form, though lots of the funniest stories aren't really news parody, but just everyday life described in a deadpan newspaper style, like stoners announce plans to get stoned for that, or rejection letter silently flipped off, or control of anecdote wrested from boyfriend. These are all considered for this one issue, by the way. The younger staffers say that it's hard not to take what happens in this room personally sometimes. Seth Reese tells me that he's made a resolution to stop muttering under his breath, you're all wrong, when the group rejects his headlines, because, after all, they can't all be wrong. Megan Gantz, who's 23 and who's been at the paper for a year and a half, says it can be a blow, and it smarts, when a headline that you're sure of, that you love, doesn't make the cut. And it happens a lot. And then all of that work just evaporates into nothing. There are headlines that I remember pitching um, that are, that I, I, I think I know that they're not any good, but some part of my heart's like to attach to them. Like I had this one that was 
spork used as knife. And for some reason, that was like the funniest thing I thought I'd ever thought of was the fact that here's a utensil that's two utensils and you're using it as the only utensil it isn't. And it didn't even get a titter in the meeting. It just, nothing just died. And I read it twice and they were like, yeah, move on. And then still, that was like, that must have been this summer. It was like months ago that I wrote that headline. I still think about it. Uh, World's most depressing technical college creates world's most depressing bus ad. It's a slight variation on one that I've I still like that. gotten, I like, gotten I like through that before. Okay. The highlighter is passed to Todd Hansen, who's not just the oldest person at the table. He's been at The Onion longer than anybody else. He started in 1990 when The Onion wasn't really a business, but more of a hobby for a few friends who all worked crappy jobs elsewhere to support themselves. In these meetings, he tends to talk the most, partly out of seniority and partly, as he admits, because he just can't be any other way. But when he reads his list, he's just like any of the other writers. And this is really the damnedest thing about their jobs. Even with all his years of experience, even he can't tell which of his brand new jokes is any good. Um, man evidently thinks those sideburns make him look cool. It's not funny. I kind of like that. Really? Kind of. Is it, is it funny with something other than sideburns? Sideburns? No? Okay. All right. Uh, pornography desensitized populace demands new orifice to look at. Yes. Yes, sure. Uh, okay, uh, Aryan man not technically pathetic in that he fails to elicit pathos. But are you just making a joke about how some people incorrectly use the word pathetic? I just meant, you know... It takes him two long mornings on Monday and on Tuesday to come up with the 16 headlines they're going to use in the paper this week. And to get to those 16, they go through, and I know this number is going to sound kind of crazy, 600 possible headlines. Uh, Okay, this is a sad uh, joke that comes straight from real life. Casual relationship enters third year. So that's still going on? (laughs) Sorry. I'm sorry. That wasn't to be mean. That was a legitimate question because we've talked about it before. Truthfully, the staff was a lot nicer to each other than I figured they'd be. Comedians can be incredibly competitive. And The Onion has gone through phases when the chemistry wasn't so chill. But mainly, they're just tough on the material. It's a tough room because of how minutely they dissect all the jokes. Over the years, they've developed a way of discussing the material that helps them decide whether something is so outstandingly funny it beats a lot of other jokes that are also pretty funny and what makes each joke funny and how to make it funnier. As an outsider, and not privy to these shared assumptions and what one of them called their hive mentality, it was sometimes hard to figure out why, for instance, local girlfriend always wants to do stuff was a good enough headline to make it into the paper, while a headline that seems nearly identical, nation's girlfriend's call from a quality time, literally gets jeers. Jeers. Listen. Nation's girlfriends call for more quality time. Or nation's, nation's wives spend all the uh, husband's money on expensive hats. Uh, uh, coming home with another round-shaped box. Look at that stack of round boxes. I'm pregnant. Lucy! Or why does this joke get immediate, unquestioning approval? Uh, beauty regimen horrifying? Yes. Yes, definitely. That's, that's funny. While the headline, Here's Roommate's Unopened Bag of Doritos Taunting Area Man, 
deserved a long discussion over whether the point of the joke was, in fact, the taunting. I, the reason it's funny is because the word taunting, really, like, yeah. like, like, like if, he's if been staring at it from a distance of 15 feet from his couch for the past 10 minutes. Or did the Doritos themselves make the joke too obvious? It, it's like, a, it would be funny and it'd have funny details in it, but it is, on its immediate surface, it's a joke about, like, Doritos and, like, sure. for food items. No, I agree, I agree that Doritos has, like, an immediate, like, go-to kind of snack. Is there another snack it could be? I mean, Doritos is the exact right product for... Watching them parse jokes like this with a kind of academic precision that they're sort of proud of, hour after hour, it's not just a tedious. It's the opposite of comedy. And the other thing that was very odd watching them work was that most of the jokes that got the biggest laughs from the writers themselves did not make it into the paper. For example, this headline. Cardinal teaches Pope to make church by interlocking his fingers... Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> or this one. Um, gay retard teased. That was great. No. That's so awful. Well, here's another. Infertile woman treats frog-shaped humidifier as human child. What the? F- <laughs> what? <laughs> and what the hell? Let's just do one more. Biologist realizes he's been studying Cadbury egg. after the meeting I get explanations for the many mysterious decisions I've witnessed I'm told that usually the jokes that get laughs on Monday do not survive again making gans a lot of the jokes that we laugh really hard at don't make it in the paper because they're just like initially funny but then we sit down on Tuesday and go well what does that mean though like what would we say about that where does that joke go like there was a headline once that everyone laughed at like really hard that was a woman crying by penguin exhibit do you guys remember this headline? Yeah. Woman sobbing near penguin exhibit. And everyone laughed really hard. And then everyone went, okay, but why is that funny? Like, it's funny because it's penguins, I guess. And like, women crying is kind of a weird thing to be happening near them. But then nobody would pitch that on a Tuesday meeting as being funny, even though it made everyone laugh. Nobody would pitch that because what do you write about that? It just doesn't go anywhere. And then there was this mystery. Why did the story, local girlfriend always wants to do stuff, make the paper? while Nation's Girlfriend's Call for More Quality Time got heckled. Todd Hansen and Dan Guterman explained that the story that went with local girlfriend always wants to do stuff was actually written in a way that made fun of the guy in the relationship. And talking about what a, you know, sort of lowly, you know, loser he is for being irked by his girlfriend's desire to do things. It's, it's just more like she's always wanting to go do stuff and be around people and she always wants to leave the house. And that seemed more original and different to us. Whereas Nation Girlfriends, what was it? Time. Just seemed like a joke about nagging girlfriends. And, and the problem with the joke about nagging girlfriends isn't the political correctness of it, but simply it's a really tired joke. It's a really tired joke. In fact, all through their editorial meetings, they're talking constantly about what jokes are tired. A joke about the Green Party and marijuana brownies was killed partly because mentioning the Green Party at all seemed passe. A headline about Nicole Ritchie's new baby, Nicole Ritchie thinks baby looks fat, was ditched on the theory that any Nicole Ritchie fat or anorexia reference was very 2005. But one area where tastes differ on the staff is when it comes to silliness. They're for silliness. Sometimes. Take the joke, scientist realizes he's been studying Cadbury egg that got such a big laugh on Monday. It's just a silly joke, says Megan. Like, we do silly jokes, granted. But it just doesn't have... It doesn't have that, like, X factor of being silly and kind of compelling. 
I don't know. It's just it doesn't have. I, I can't explain what the difference is between that one and we ran one that was Thirsty Mayor Drinks Town's Entire Water Supply. And that one, we had the same reaction. When it was read, it, we laughed really hard, and then it went in the paper. And why is that one sillier and in a better way than the other one is silly? I don't, I can't, it's just, it's funny because it's almost always agreed upon in the meetings. Almost, but not quite. When Todd Hansen and I sat down for an interview, he spontaneously brought up the exact same headline Megan had mentioned that make a very different point. No, no, no. Don't get me wrong. I like the silly jokes. I just, I just have to think them through and find out what they're saying. Like I remember there was a joke. Uh, Thirsty mayor drinks entire town's water supply. And, and I just – I kept saying, why? What, what is it – it's a thirsty, thirsty guy drinks a whole lake? Like what's funny about that? That's just silly. That's just – it's silly in a way that isn't funny. And they're like, no, no, you got to trust us. It's funny because he's the thirsty mayor. He drinks the whole town. And they were trying to explain to me and I just didn't get it. And then finally it clicked in my head and I said, oh, I get it. It's about – misappropriation of public resources by a corrupt, you know, ruling, uh, uh, you know, oligarchy or whatever. And then everyone made fun of me like, oh, yeah, that's what it's about. It's not just silly. Well, of course it's silly, but it has a, it has something to say. And that's why it's funny. I, that's what I think. I mean, I just don't think jokes that don't have anything to say are that funny. If, if, if you can't find something legitimate to say within the context of the joke, no matter how silly it is, I don't I don't see the point of it. In fact, to sort this out, a whole language has emerged over the years at The Onion to talk about whether something is too silly or silly in the wrong way. Writers speak about a joke taking them to Silly Town or Crazyville or Silly Town Heights, which is either good or bad, depending on the person. And it can be bad, though it's usually good, when something is called a laugher. That's laugher with two Fs. A laugher is a big dumb joke that you have to laugh at. If the photo that accompanies a story is a sandwich holding a press conference, that's a laugher. And the whole story is a laugher-tunity. Laughers are often the most emailed stories, the most popular things that The Onion does. And while everybody on staff likes both silly jokes and jokes with a bigger meaning, a few of the younger writers definitely have more tolerance for jokes that are purely silly and a different vision for what should go in the paper. And there were a couple times during the editorial meetings that I watched where the two sides squared off against each other. At one point, they were discussing two headlines that covered very familiar ground at The Onion. Plan to stay in all weekend and play video games goes off smoothly. And Area Man makes it through day. Seth, one of the newest staffers, and Todd, the oldest, saw these very differently. Especially the video game one. It seems very onion by the numbers. That's kind of why I liked it. I, I know, but it's like I, almost to a point where it's like that sentiment. I, I don't think we're saying we're doing anything new there. I don't know. I just think that is the onion's ethos. I mean, that's kind of like what, what the onion is about. I mean, that's what America is. Like you've done that joke. Well, I, well, no, I'm just saying America, well, the reason we've done that joke before is America has been like that for, you know, a long time, and it still is. But the sentiment is, is so similar to, a lot, to the sentiment of a lot of Onion, like, headlines that people aren't going to, they're not going to notice that. They're just going to be like, oh, the Onion does this again. I don't know, it just doesn't feel well, right I'm going to me. keep writing jokes like that till the day I die, so I'm just warning you. At the heart of this dispute is a problem that comes up in any creative project that lasts even a few years. You don't want to become a parody of yourself. You don't want to keep repeating the same things over and over. And yet there are some things that you do a lot of that are just built into the DNA of what you make. This is definitely something that we struggle with here on our radio show. And in fact, The Onion once did an article that made fun of us for rehashing certain kinds of stories, which is funny, and it stung. Megan Gantz says that as one of the newer writers on staff, she worries sometimes 
that they're just repeating the same jokes over and over with different words. There's the one, for instance, where a big government institution just acts like your schmo college roommate, like Syria attends Mitty's peace talks for free continental breakfast. Funny, but it's a formula. And and now they have like with the youngs, the youngs and olds. The problem is, all of the young people grew up reading the stuff that the older people wrote. So we formed our sense of humor on the on the Onion, and then became writers for the Onion. You're you're trying to write for your idols. It, it's it's strange. It's strange for us. I know we've we've talked about it many times. The, the young people here. It's strange for us to like write for your idols. Yeah, but also, you're saying to Todd, who's been here forever. Like, yeah, you can't do that again. Don't do that joke again. I'm tired of that joke. Ah, that is really horrible, isn't it? So I've been trying to, like, mimic him throughout my life to get to where I am. And now that I'm where I am, I'm like, don't do what you do. In the end, Area Man makes it through day, makes it onto a list of stories that will appear in upcoming issues of The Onion. Probably because the founder and editor-in-chief of the paper, Scott Dickers, liked it. Though this disagreement wasn't even close to the biggest fight they've all had lately. That fight, I'm told, was over the headline... Ghosts just dropped by to say boo. One group 100% hated it. One group 100% loved it. People raised their voices. One usually mild-mannered editor walked out in protest. I guess people kind of read it as like a third-grade joke book joke. Editor Joe Rendazzo says it was an existential fight about what kind of paper they were that would or would not publish such a thing. One member of staff may love the onion that would never have ghosts just drop by to, to say boo while another member of staff may love the fact that The Onion can include a joke that says, ghosts just drop by the state to say boo. It's totally subjective, though. Finally, the editor-in-chief had to tell everybody to cut it out, and they published the joke. And this one headline did not ruin the paper. But a room full of people who'd even entertain the possibility that it might, who feel that strongly about it, that's a very tough room. It's funny if I got a pie in the face. One man's disasters, another one's laughter. It's old as the human race. Ha ha ha. Laughing is all I do. But you've only known me since I've been lonely. So you don't believe it's true. Back to. Barcar prophecy. When you're a kid, adulthood itself can seem kind of a tough room, in which you're going to have to adapt to the strange custom that is the world of adults. But for Rosie Schapp, when she was a kid, the prospect of hanging with the adults seemed exciting, an adventure. In 1986, when I was 15, I discovered the bar car on the Metro North New Haven line, a dingy, crowded, badly ventilated chamber where commuters drank enough to get a decent buzz going, told dirty jokes, and chain-smoked. These were my kind of people, and even though in my memory the whole place is covered in a sort of grimy yellow film, it was my kind of joint. I took the train once a week from Westport, Connecticut, to Manhattan's Grand Central Station to see my psychoanalyst. As self-absorbed as any teenager, I'd come to enjoy psychoanalysis. I'd been going since eighth grade, and the 50-minute sessions made me feel like the featured guest on a talk show. It helped that my shrink sounded a lot like Dick Cavett. (laughs) 
But from the moment I first stumbled into the bar car after one of our appointments, my return trip to Westport became the best part of my Thursday visits. I liked the company of grown-ups, especially strangers. With them, I found it easy to feel smart and funny and interesting. Once when I was eight and we were vacationing at the beach, my mother sent me to borrow a skillet from the neighbors, a bunch of 30-somethings in a shared rental. They were lounging on an L-shaped white couch and seemed to get a kick out of everything I said, even the word skillet. I wasn't even sure what the word meant until a tall woman handed me a heavy pan with flared sides. I thanked her and turned to leave. But they weren't ready to let me go. They had questions. Who was I? What grade was I in? What was I into? I was astonished by their interest. I sat myself down and asked if they wanted to hear a joke. So this Jewish-American princess married an Indian chief. Guess what they named their baby? I paused for effect. Whitefish. It's a terrible joke. I'd heard my mother tell it to one of her friends. I didn't exactly get it. But these grown-ups, sitting there drinking wine, tumbled off the big white couch laughing, and I felt like a superstar. That's how I wanted to feel in the bar car, surrounded by its regulars, mostly men in wrinkled suits and loosened neckties. I liked listening to them. They drank beer or scotch, laughed loudly, talked fast, and always seemed happy to see each other. They were a tribe, and I wanted in. Still, I didn't dare pony up to the bar and order myself a beer. There was no way the weary Metro North crew would serve me. I needed a point of entry. I found what I was looking for the night I pulled my tarot cards from my backpack and gave myself a reading right there in the bar car. I'd been studying the pictorial key to the tarot, a 1910 primer by Arthur Edward Waite, and had cultivated a look that fell somewhere between Janis Joplin and Madame Blavatsky. Gauzy Indian dresses, batik caftans, chunky silver rings on my fingers. My tarot card smelled of patchouli and sandalwood, cigarettes and pot. I shuffled them and then began to lay them out in the Celtic cross pattern I'd learned from Waite's book. First the significator, the card that stood for me. Then the card that crossed me, signifying the things that blocked my path. Next, the card that crowned me, representing my ideals and aims. And so on and so on, until I'd laid out the tenth and final card, which would reveal the answer to my question. By then, a small crowd had gathered around me. When I finished, a woman asked if I'd give her a reading. It was the first time someone in the bar car had spoken to me without wanting to see my ticket. She asked what I charged. I hadn't thought about that. I mulled it over and told her I thought it was kind of bad mojo to take money for readings, but I was cool with bartering, and I wouldn't mind a beer. She didn't ask how old I was. Her reading was good, mostly positive cards. Yes, I told her, she would thrive at her new job. She might even get a promotion soon. She smiled and discreetly got me that beer. Suddenly, it was like a divination marathon. I must have done five readings in an hour. The more I read, the more confident I grew. A routine took shape. As I laid down the cards, I'd sing Neil Young's After the Gold Rush quietly, almost under my breath. Then, when I was done, I'd give the whole pattern an initial once-over and look solemnly into the questioner's eyes. The cards are here to guide us, I'd say in a voice an octave lower than my own. 
but what they tell us is not carved in stone. You have the power to change any of this. And all these grown-ups, accountants, lawyers, executives, hung on my every word. The next week, after therapy, my fortune-telling for alcohol scheme began in earnest. Again, I settled into the bar car and gave myself a reading. And again, a cluster of commuters assembled around me. I felt like I'd cracked a code. They'd sit down next to me and listen obediently. When you shuffle the cards, put your energy into them. Concentrate on your question, I instructed them. If you're doing this half-heartedly, the cards will know. This continued for weeks, and out of it I got plenty of beer, a couple of books, a pair of silver earrings. That and the undivided attention of all these adults. I'd explain what each position in the Celtic cross meant, the significance of casting more cups than swords, more wands than pentacles. If someone's reading turned up an unusually high number of major arcana cards, I'd go quiet for a moment before I disclosed to him how much power that foretold and urged him to use that power responsibly for the greater good. I never asked them their names, and I never told them mine, not my real one anyway. Yet time after time, as I laid out their futures, complete strangers would drop intimate clues about their lives, their jobs, their families. More than once, a wingtip-wearing banker or salesman confided in me that he'd taken acid and sloshed around in the mud at Woodstock and felt very connected to the energy of the universe. I'd nod and say something like, That's awesome, man. I wish I'd been there. It was as if I'd materialized before their eyes like some ghost from their youth, come back to answer questions about their future. Of course, there were people in the bar car who paid me no mind, and others who made their skepticism known. But I was dismissive of the non-believers. They were out of touch, and that was their loss. Still, one heckler in the crowd made me nervous. I couldn't pinpoint his age, mid-thirties, I guessed. He was a broad-shouldered, thick-necked guy with a beer gut, strawberry blonde hair, and a big, ruddy face. He looked like a Kennedy, but you couldn't quite put your finger on which one. And did he have a mouth on him? The F word used as a noun, verb, and adjective strung together in one sentence, and then the next and the next, like artillery fire. The guy was always drunker and louder than anyone else. Once, he cupped his hands into a makeshift megaphone and sort of stage shouted at me, something like, The 60s are over! Get a life! As much as I basked in my bar car celebrity, I dreaded seeing that guy. And then one Thursday, after I'd already served a few of my patrons, he half-staggered, half-swaggered over to me. All right, he said, this is total BS, but go ahead, do mine. He plunked himself down across from me, his knees a little too close. I wanted to tell him to go away. I wanted to tell him that his unwillingness to believe would insult the spirits and make them uncooperative. But I worried he'd call me a fraud. I played it cool and started my spiel. Shuffle, focus, give the cards your energy. He rolled his eyes but played along. He cut the cards once and handed me the deck. I laid them out. 
First, I set down his significator, the Ten of Swords, possibly the worst card of all, with a solitary prostrate figure under a black sky, pierced in the back by all ten swords. It represents, in Waite's words, pain, affliction, sadness. The rest of the cards weren't much better. He'd pulled the tower, a card signaling corruption, destruction, and the presence of evil. He got the death card, too. And as much as I disliked the guy, I really didn't like what I saw in those cards. Not for anyone. Not even for him. I kept quiet for a long minute while I tried to figure out how to spin this, but there was nothing good I could say. Maintaining eye contact is key to being a good mystic, but I couldn't even meet his gaze. Well, what's it say? he finally asked. I took a deep breath. None of this is carved in stone or written in blood. He cut me off. Well, what? So I told him what I saw, and as I interpreted one dismal symbol after another, the guy leaned in closer, put his elbows on the table, buried his head in his hands, and started to cry. He told me that his marriage was falling apart, that he constantly worried about his health, that he was too young for heart problems, but he had them, that he felt as though his life had added up to zero. He asked, will I ever be happy? The cards, I answered bluntly, said no. But, I told him, just like I told everyone else, you have the power to change that. He shook his head and glared at me with red, swollen eyes that said he did not. Maybe he didn't. Maybe no one had the power. Maybe the days that lie ahead of us are set in stone, and that was that. And maybe I'd been the cynic. Something I had believed in had become a gambit for attention. I hadn't thought it through, and maybe I'd even hurt people. In the background, other passengers were caught up in conversation, laughing and drinking and carrying on. I could think of nothing more to say to the guy, nothing reassuring. I felt small and foolish, and when the guy finally got off the train a couple of stops before mine, I was relieved. I sat awake in my bed that night and thought about him. I imagined him going home to a white-clabbered colonial, to an unhappy wife pretending to be asleep. I imagined him returning the next day to a job he hated and getting wasted again that afternoon. But of course at 15, I couldn't imagine what it was like to be him, to live his life. And I realized I didn't want to be able to. Reading tarot cards in the bar car had been fun until it got serious. Adults had problems I could not begin to fathom, and they had things to say I wasn't ready to hear. I didn't go back to the bar car. I missed the grown-ups. I missed their attention. But I was not one of them. I didn't belong there. Although I could feel adulthood encroaching, real adulthood, which now seemed less about drinking and smoking and freedom, and more about loss and fear and the sense that death itself lay waiting somewhere just ahead. Rosie Schapp, 
This story comes from a book of essays that she's writing about drinking called Drinking with Men. It comes out next year. Coming up, if Jerry Seinfeld became a Mormon tomorrow, the most likely way that it would happen will be because of two guys that we are going to introduce you to. That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio and Public Radio International when our program continues. It's This American Life from Ira Class. Each week on our show, of course, we choose a theme, bring you a variety of different kinds of stories on that theme. And hello? 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 Anybody out there? Okay, if you're out there, make a noise. Tough room. That's our theme. Very clever how we do this here on the public radio, huh? We've arrived at Act 3 of our show. Act 3, Mission Impossible. In the Bible, God is constantly sending his prophets into situations where nobody wants to hear what they have to say. And after high school, young Mormon men are basically supposed to do the same thing. They are encouraged to go on a two-year mission to spread the gospel. They pay their own way. Jane Feltis followed two of these guys out to convert people in a place that we usually don't think of as a bastion of Mormonism or particularly friendly to missionaries, the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Elder Longy, elder doesn't mean older, it's just a title given to missionaries, is 20, an army brat most recently from Utah. Elder Meller is from Utah, too, and he's 21. They're both in the second year of their mission, so they kind of have it down. How are you doing today, sir? you ever had a chance to read the Book of Mormon? No chance? Uh, do you know anyone in the area we can share a message right Christ with? The guy literally tells him, get lost. You don't know anybody in the area? We can do some service for? Uh, you have a great day, sir. Today they're stopping people outside the American Museum of Natural History, but they work all over New York and its suburbs. And the toughest thing about being a missionary in New York isn't what you might think, that it's too secular or too Jewish or too unfriendly or too cool for school, especially Sunday school. No, the problem is competition. In New York, there are so many distractions on the street, people trying to hand you flyers or get you into their hair salon or comedy show. If you're saying no to someone who asks, do you have one minute to save the environment? You're not going to say yes to these guys. Like, everyone's walking down the street and everybody's walking about the same pace. And anything that will, like, disrupt the flow will cause them to be angry just because they, they're already in the mindset that they're going somewhere. Anything that stops them is going to make them angry. And usually we're the ones that stop them. We're usually that disruption. Both guys are living off their savings while they're here. Elder Longy lives in Chinatown with three other missionaries in a two-bedroom apartment. Elder Meller's two-bedroom in Harlem houses six missionaries. And for 12 hours every day from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m., most of their interactions are less than 30 seconds, if you could even call them interactions. Hey, sister! Elder Meller calls out to a cute woman in her late 20s. Have you ever seen this picture before? Sorry. He shows her a picture of Jesus baptizing Peter on the cover of his Book of Mormon. Have you ever seen this picture before? Yes, I have. That's good. We want to invite you to be baptized by that same authority that he's given. I'm Christian. I don't know. Yeah, we are too. All right, but I'm not Mormon. Thank you, though. I'm not Mormon, she says. Thank you, though. I wouldn't talk to you if you were Mormon, right? (laughs) Where are you from? She's gone within seven seconds. Par for the course, says Alder Longy. I don't know if you saw it, when people say no, and we're still trying to talk to them, we're just trying different things, like... Uh, no, I don't want that. I was like, do you know anyone who does want it? So, no, I don't know. Well, do you know anyone who wants to come to church? No, I, I don't know anybody. Well, do you want to come to church? And, <laughs> then, just, and then they walk away and you feel what? And I feel, I don't know, just, oh, that guy really does not want to go to church. 
I don't. I don't say I get. I get sometimes I get defensive. I'm just like, like under my breath, I'll mutter something. Elder Long, did you ever get the my baby sleeping? I have to go watch it. Oh yeah. Hey, hate that. It's oh, like yeah. it's sleeping. You don't need to watch it. <laughs> yeah, excuses. <laughs> Hey brother, how are you feeling today? How you doing today, brother? Hey sisters, can we invite you guys to get your warm on by coming up? To Calling everybody side? brother and sister was not working at all for them. Have, have a good one. I figured it had to be a Mormon thing. Turns out, it's not. I picked that up in the Bronx. Just say, hey, what's up, brother? And so usually in the Bronx, they're like, hey, what's up? And they'll, they'll like say it back. This definitely ain't the Bronx, though. Right across the street lives Jerry Seinfeld, Glenn Close, John McEnroe, and Helen Gurley Brown, which makes it the toughest kind of neighborhood for missionaries. In the Bronx, people will talk to them, let them visit their homes. But the wealthier the area, they say, like here on Central Park West, it's a much harder sell. Spreading the word about Mormonism is a numbers game, and to talk to the greatest number of people in a day in New York City the guys have each learned how to strike up a conversation in at least five different languages. Elder Longy approaches a man sitting on the steps. Donde vive? In Manhattan? Brooklyn. Brooklyn, que Elder Meller hears a woman speaking French to her child. What is in Francais? Le livre des Mormons? Au revoir. And Elder Longy, he even knows some sign language. My, my sign language is improving. Over the course of the afternoon, approaching every person who walks by, they get a couple dozen cards with the church's address into people's hands. They say on average they manage to get about three or four new people to come to church each week, which seems amazingly low, given that it's two of them, working basically every waking minute. Are these skills that you're learning out here these few years, are they things you think you're going to take into your career? Yes. Most definitely. Most definitely. What, what are you going to do? I thought about it. I was like, oh, I bet selling life insurance is way easier than this. Because I've met, I've met uh, people who do sell life insurance, and they're like, they're happy I'm people like oh, they're very successful. I wonder what I could do if I did that. Or like those guys who sell scissors go to door to door and they like cut co. They sell scissors. I'm like, I'm sure I can sell some scissors. Like sometimes I think I was like, I think I could sell scissors better than that guy, because you know how to deal with people turning you down. You know how to deal with, like even if you get turned down over and over again, it's finding that little thing that that keeps you going. That little thing that you know keeps you talking to people. But in this, that little thing that keeps you going is like eternal life. With scissors, I don't know if I don't know paycheck. I don't know. While I'm with them, their longest conversations are with guys who seem down on their luck. One guy might have been drunk, and another guy who, if he wasn't homeless, was probably often mistaken for homeless. And they spend even more time with people they have no hope of baptizing, like this guy. Here you go, last one. I don't like the way they translated it, but okay. Elder Meller is standing talking to a middle-aged Orthodox Jewish man in a navy trench coat and hat. The two men get into a long, in-depth discussion about religion. Specifically, whether, as the Mormons believe, a prophet walked the earth in America in the 1800s. What about, like, Jeremiah and things like that? In dreams. They had dreams. God did not speak to them. All right. 
you know, our message is that God has a prophet on the earth again. There are many, there are many prophets. Which is true. But there is those ordained, like Moses. It was like watching a couple football fans talk about the Super Bowl, even though they were rooting for different teams. They know they'll never convince the other their team is better, but they're really enjoying the back and forth. They seem relieved to have found someone who relates to the world the way they do. God bless you. You too, brother. Have a good one. I think some of the favorite people I like talking to, I like talking to Jews and I like talking to Muslims. Um, Muslims are really cool. Just because I find that they're more devout. It's easier for me to talk to them because they, they're very faithful people. You guys have that in common. Yeah, it's true. And But like going along with the Jews and Muslims and stuff is they understand the idea of a covenant, you know, a two-way agreement. So they're more devout with it. At 6 p.m. it's dark and so cold, nobody's on the street anymore. So the guys head off on a home visit to meet with a new potential convert. They have three hours of work ahead of them today, and roughly a combined 3,240 hours to go. Jane Feltis is one of the producers of our show. Act four, Contrails of My Tears. We end our show today with this story of a place that is the exact opposite of a tough room. Brett Martin says it's happened to him. A couple of years ago, I was on a flight from New York to San Juan, Puerto Rico. The movie was Sweet Home Alabama, which you'll remember. is about a southern girl played by Reese Witherspoon who moves to New York, joins the fashion industry, and then is forced to return home and come to terms with her white trash roots. At the end, there's a wedding scene when the character has to explain to her big city husband-to-be that she's leaving him for her earthy, down-home high school sweetheart. You see, the truth is... I gave my heart away a long time ago. My whole heart. And I never really got it back. And I, I don't even know what else to say, but... I'm sorry. I can't marry you. Into the stunned silence that follows walks Candace Bergen as the jilted fiancé's dragon lady of a mother, who, coincidentally, also happens to be the mayor of New York. After a volley of insults, Witherspoon decks Bergen. And it was at this moment, somewhere between when Witherspoon drawled, nobody talks to my mama like that, and her father, Earl Smooter, raised his face to the heavens and declared, praise the Lord, the South has risen again, that something began to happen to me. My face got hot and constricted. A softball rose in my throat that required a surprisingly loud snort to choke back. My breathing grew rapid. In short, I lost it and started to cry. I should say that Sweet Home Alabama is not a very good movie. It's actually a pretty terrible movie. I have no particular attachment to Reese Witherspoon, and I'm not from the South. Also, this was the fourth time I'd seen it. See, my name is Brett and I cry at movies on airplanes. Not sometimes, always. And not some movies, all movies. Don't believe me? Here's a by no means complete list. Bend It Like Beckham, 101 Dalmatians, What a Girl Wants, Daredevil. Let me be clear, I'm not afraid of flying. I like flying. 
And I'm not a crier, at least not on land. Like many men I know, even sensitive ones who know that having a cry can be healthy and good, I passed some invisible line in adolescence when I simply stopped doing it. There have been many times in life that I probably should have cried, actually tried to cry, and wasn't able to. Because, of course, I didn't happen to be at 30,000 feet. Needless to say, this can be embarrassing. I once confessed my problem to a friend, and he thought for a long moment before saying, I'm sorry to hear that. Does it make your mascara run? Earlier this year, I was flying from Denver to New York and found myself seated next to a big burly guy with a cowboy shirt and a western belt buckle. Before takeoff, we talked about football or college basketball or something. Then they announced the movie. It was Under the Tuscan Sun. I glanced at my macho new buddy, thought about watching Diane Lane experience love and loss while rediscovering her inner strength in a farmhouse in the Italian countryside, and read the Sky Mall catalog instead. For a long time, I thought I was alone in this. Then a few months ago, I was at a party and overheard another guest describe how he fell to pieces watching an episode of Everybody Loves Raymond on a flight to California. I started asking around and found I wasn't completely alone. Greg is a 32-year-old guy in jeans and a Mets hat who just finished writing a book about college sports. I think it might have been the only movie available was uh, Dirty Dancing 2, Havana Nights. The parents watch them dance and they see how special... Um, that the, this relationship is, and, and, and at that moment, they've gone from angry parents to sort of accepting of Javier. I mean, I got choked up. As my fellow weepers will tell you, even not watching the movie is no guarantee of safety. Here's my friend Lindsay. So I was on a flight, I believe California to New York. The specifics don't really stand out, but I do remember that... Um, it, w- it required a $2 deposit for earphones or something, and I wasn't ready to pay the $2, so I didn't have $2, and I decided I'd read my book. But, you know, the movie's playing, and I see it, and I can't take my eyes off of it. So I end up watching the entire duration of the movie without sound. And at various points throughout it, I started welling up, thinking, wow, I can't believe I'm crying in a movie. I'm, I can't hear the sound, too, and it's Freaky Friday. Or take Stephen, an avid film festival goer and a professional movie critic who can discourse at length on the differences between early and late period Kurosawa. His plane hadn't even taken off. And they were just running this loop of commercials and in-flight programming and stuff. They, They hadn't started the movie. It was very early on. And there was this Amex commercial... A man traveling through Europe and, uh, you know, I think it was nighttime. I want to say it was raining or something. And this uh, kind of haggard traveler, this businessman, uh, is walking briskly through the street. And then they close up on a wallet, clearly his, um, that he had left behind unknowingly. And then you see kind of cut to the hotel where he's checking in. And the woman asks for a credit card. And then he pats himself down and realizes he doesn't have it. He goes into a state of panic. I think that's when I started choking up. And then he gets American Express on the phone. They explain that it'll be okay. He'll have a credit card in the morning. And then I start to relax a little bit. And then he says, wait a minute, I'm not going to be in this city. Tomorrow I have to travel. And then I started choking up again. And then they said, oh, we'll have it waiting for you in that city. And then I, I just started crying after that. I was so happy for him and relieved. And it was a pretty tense situation there for, for about 15 or 20 seconds. 
This is one of the strange features of our problem. We're less likely to cry at the sad parts of a movie or financial services industry commercial than at the happy ones, the parts where everything turns out all right. For instance, in the movie Larger Than Life, which I saw somewhere over the Atlantic a few years ago, it wasn't the moment when Bill Murray is separated from the elephant that his dead circus clown father has left him as a means to change his life as a down-on-his-luck motivational speaker that had me reaching for the tissues. It was when they were reunited. In fact, the first time this happened to me was during one of the happiest scenes I'd ever seen. It was in Big Night, Stanley Tucci's movie about fraternal love and Italian food. Midway through the movie, Tucci's character and his brother stage a feast in their New Jersey restaurant and at one point bring out a whole roast pig. The camera pans across the faces of the guests, just amazed by this unbelievable bounty being wheeled into the room, and the lump began to rise in my throat. I found myself brimming over with joy, with the sense that somewhere in the darkness, miles below, just like on screen, people were laughing, communing, sharing a meal. It was impossibly beautiful, and there was just nothing to do but cry. I've never heard of anyone crying inappropriately on trains or on buses or in boats or cars. What is it about airplanes? I remember getting off the plane thinking, I should really actually be embarrassed by the fact that I just cried during Freaky Friday and I didn't even hear the sound to it, but um, I wasn't. It's like, you know, what happens in air stays in air, I guess. (laughs) The people I talked to offered a lot of excuses. It's the recirculated air, your eyes are dry, you're often tired and leaving people behind. And of course, there's the obvious conclusion, we're all scared to death. But I've been on hundreds of planes, including quite a few tiny ones, one seaplane that landed on water and one blimp. I've taken the controls of a plane. I've jumped out of a plane. I've searched my soul and honest to God, I find no fear of flying. And all the frequent criers I interviewed felt the same. No, something else happens up there in that weird hanging state between where you're going and where you've left, where there's no phone calls to take, nowhere to go, nothing to do. Some strange overhead compartment of the heart opens up, and critical judgment grabs its flotational seat cushion and follows the lighted pathway to the big yellow slide. My friend Greg says this actually makes the ride better. Think about it. You're stuck in a seat for 5 or 10 or 15 hours, and how would you rather pass the time? Sitting there being a critic? Or just simply giving in? I mean, I wouldn't have watched... Havana Nights, you know, in the waiting area, waiting to get on the plane, um, on Earth, no, not not a chance. Um, but once you step on the plane, I'm open to and accepting the movie. And then once you do that, it's going to leave me jelly. It turn me into jelly. My own theory goes something like this. My father once told me that the reason squirrels get hit by cars is that evolutionarily nothing in their little hardwired brains is capable of understanding a large object hurtling toward them at 70 miles per hour. Well, even though I fly all the time, nothing in my little hardwired brain is capable of understanding, I mean really understanding, stepping onto a metal tube, hanging in space for a while, and then stepping off 6,000 miles away in a place with different weather, different stars, different time. It puts you into a kind of sterile, infantilizing travel purgatory. You're strapped in, given a blanket, a little sippy cup and tiny silverware, forced to do whatever you're told and borne away at speeds you can't conceive without seeing where you're going. We all deal with this dislocation differently. Many times I've thought, why can't I just have air rage? Why can't I be the guy drinking 14 mini bottles of amaretto, surfing down the aisle on the dinner cart, groping stewardesses and cursing? But then... 
I do a lot of yelling and screaming down here on the ground, even a little groping. What I don't do is cry, not over breakups or reunions or triumphs or deaths or leaving home or coming back or any of life's other bumps and transformations. And maybe that's the key to my air, what, sorrow? Maybe I cry the tears I should be shedding on Earth. And all of you people who don't cry on airplanes, you're probably the ones I see sobbing on the subway or on street corners or at funerals. You probably get it all out at home. Well, boo-hoo. Do us all a favor and keep it in the air, you babies. Brett Martin is a correspondent for GQ Magazine in New York. How could I move the crowd? First of all, ain't no mistakes allowed. Our program was produced today by Robin Semyon with Alex Bloomberg, Jane Feltis, John Jeter, Sarah Koenig, Lisa Pollock, Alyssa Ship, and Nancy Updike. Our senior producers, Julie Snyder. Seth Lind is our production manager. Emily Condon's our office manager. Adrian Mathewitz runs our website. Music help from Jessica Hopper. Production help from Eric Menel. Special thanks today to Michael Purdy, Bradley Olson, and Robert Crowich. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International, WBEZ Management Oversight, by our boss, Mr. Tony Malatia, who says that he is absolutely certain... After all these years, doing the pledge drive must be good for something. I thought about it. I was like, oh, I bet selling life insurance is way easier than this. Or like those guys who sell scissors go to door to door and they like Cutco. They sell scissors. I'm like, I'm sure I can sell some scissors. I'm Ira Glass. Back next week with more stories of this American life. But don't make me wait too long because I'm going to move on the dance floor. When they put something smooth on, so turn up the bass. It's better when it's loud. Cause I like to move the crowd. 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 PRI Public Radio International.